I can do some more announcements for you. Uh, first off, we are looking for someone to do the bulletins and the scheduling for the next six months, starting July 1st. Anyone can do it. You don't have to be a member. Uh, we just need, they're in charge of starting July 1st, doing the weekly bulletins, making sure the greeting schedule is in there, the nursery schedule is in there. Three months in, you'll make a new nursery and greeter schedule and that sort of thing so that everyone keeps going and so I don't have to do it. I appreciate uh, April Curtis did it the past six months, and the way we do it is you're on six months and you have to be off for at least a year. Because we Have you ever wondered what to give someone for Father's Day? It's a hard... It's a very, very hard holiday to shop for. You can Google traditional gifts to give mothers, and it's a very short list. Flowers, card, framed picture of kids' art. That's a traditional gift. You give it to a mom, the mom's thrilled, she's happy, they remembered me. And she's great for another year, don't have to give her anything else. No, please. <laughs> Some people are crazier and they give out oddball things like a tent pig on Mother's Day. But those people are just weird. We won't talk about who that is. But what do you give... <laughs> I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> what do you give a dad on Father's Day? You can Google traditional gifts for a dad and you will find a list. Ties. Socks, slippers, handkerchiefs, luxury chocolate, dad's favorite drink, garden tools, do-it-yourself tools, and the list keeps going on and on and on and on. Notice the difference between the Mother's Day gift list and the Father's Day gift list. Why in the world do they take this motley stuff and just throw it together and basically say, I don't know what you give a dad, just give him something. Why? Does no one know what to give a dad in our culture? Notice on that list, it doesn't say a framed piece of child's art. Why not? Could it be that in today's culture, dads aren't being dads? You can turn on the TV, you can watch a movie, you can listen to music, and you see two distinct themes being shoved into our culture about men and about dads. Men are either painted as stupid, or absent. That's the two themes. And so many men ingest this over and over and over again so that they drink the Kool-Aid and they say, oh yeah, I must be either stupid or absent. And what do you give a dad who is stupid or absent? You don't know. You just walk to the store and grab the first thing. And you say, here dad, happy Father's Day because I really don't know you or what you do. Contrary to what our culture tells us, dads are designed and commissioned by God to lead. Not to be stupid or absent, but to lead. He created Adam first, gave Adam the first law, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam was expected to pass that law onto Eve to lead her in spirituality, to lead her in following God, to protect her from the dangers of this world. Throughout scripture, we see men who lead and we see men who do not lead and the detriment of what happens when a man does not stand up and fill 
the role and the vacuum that is left and all the horrible things that happen when men don't stand up and say, this is who God has designed me to be. This is who I will be. But how do we do that? How do we do what God has called us to do instead of what the culture tells us we are to do? Think about leadership and the Kool-Aid of our culture. I want to talk about a man who was a servant and who drank a different kind of drink than the Kool-Aid of his culture. He is simply described as, I was a cupbearer to the king, and his name was Nehemiah. Before we jump in, will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for being the God who is with us, for being the God who strengthens us, for being the God who empowers us, for being the God who takes a broken down voice and gives it strength to get through the task. And thank you, God, for calling us to a task, that we don't have to be this person that floats on the waves of life here and there, but we can be like an arrow going fast and forward, swift and true to the mark that has been called to us. Lord, help us to be that arrow. Help us to know what it means to reflect you in our culture, even though the culture tries to stop us. And Father, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Who was Nehemiah? He describes himself simply as a cupbearer to the king of Persia, a guy by the name of Artaxerxes. And I'm very grateful that we don't have anyone by that name anymore. How would you like to say, President Artaxerxes? It's like just stumbles out, just falls. Cupbearer is a rather difficult position. When I was a kid, I heard about the cupbearer position, and I thought that he was just this servant. The king is lazy, the king is thirsty, and he says, hey, cupbearer, bring me some lemonade. And the cupbearer comes, says, here, king, have some lemonade. And so the cupbearer runs, grabs the lemonade, brings it to the king. When the king goes on the trip, the cupbearer says, here, king, I brought your favorite cup. I got, I'm, a, I'm bearing your cup, king. This is my favorite cup, by the way. <laughs> I don't use it very often anymore because people think I'm weird. It is a beer stein from Germany, and it got me through seminary. Now, I have to be careful when I say that. Because <laughs> it wasn't filled with beer. Uh, my favorite drink at that time, I would fill it with water, and then I would put about four times the amount of powdered lemonade that they call for. And I called it supercharged lemonade. And I tell you what, one sip will last you for a couple hours. It wakes you up. It's great. I didn't know what a cupbearer was when I was a kid. But turns out that a cupbearer is the king's most trusted servant. Yes, he was in charge of getting the king a drink, saying, here, king, here's your drink. But he was also charged with taking a sip from it and saying, oh, yeah, that tastes good. Making sure that the, 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 the mixture of the drink was what it was supposed to be because no king wants lemonade that is too sweet, okay? No king wants that, though I'm sure he had something other than lemonade in his cup. But not only was the cupbearer in charge of making sure the mixture of the drink was appropriate to how the king wanted it to be, but the cupbearer was charged with taking a sip, and if he didn't kill over, 
It was then safe for the king to drink. The cupbearer was number one on the king's anti-assassination team to say, yes, king, this is safe, you can drink it. To be a cupbearer to the king, oh, there you go, lemonade. One had to be trustworthy. One had to be trustworthy. No king wanted his cupbearer to be someone he couldn't trust. If he couldn't trust that cupbearer, he'd kill him and find someone else who was trustworthy. He wanted to be able to trust his cupbearer. To be a cupbearer to the king, one had to be responsible. He had to take his task seriously, to make sure to take that sip every single time. He couldn't be absent-minded and say, ooh, that's a nice Mercedes-Benz, here, king, and forget to take the sip, and then the king dies. It doesn't work that way. He had to be trustworthy. He had to be responsible. He had to be careful. Someone else's life was in the cupbearer's hands, and you don't just give your life to someone else. You don't give that life to someone else. You took care because life was on the line, which brings me to the last description. A cupbearer of the king, one had to put his life on the line every single day for someone else. Every time he raised that glass and took the sip, he was putting his life on the line for someone else. That is Nehemiah. But not only was Nehemiah a cupbearer, but the Bible describes him as a wall builder. Interestingly, if you think about cupbearing and wall building, the same traits apply for both of them. I, I need to paint you some background. Nehemiah is living in Persia at this time. He is in exile. A hundred years or so before, 70 years or so before, people of Israel were in idolatry. They were worshiping all the other gods instead of the one true God. And God had told them over and over and over again, if you don't worship me, I am going to send you into exile. I'm going to discipline you so you will come back. And the people of Israel said, sorry, God, I'm going to worship the gods of the culture around me instead of you. And finally, God said, enough is enough. Sent them in exile to Babylon. Babylon got taken over by Persia, but most of Israel is still in exile. A few of them are left behind in Judah, and there's some trickling going back to Judah. Nehemiah is sitting with the king's cup in his hand, and his brothers come back from a visit of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah questions them, wanting to know what is going on in Jerusalem, what's going on with the remnant, those who are not taken into captivity. And Nehemiah records this of what is said to him. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. For a city not to have a wall is like a house not to have locks on it. Some of you say, I don't have locks on my house. Others say, I got 10 locks on my house. Ain't no one coming in. It depends on where you live. And Jerusalem was one of those houses, one of those areas where you wanted 10 locks on it at least. For a city not to have a wall, it means anyone could come and steal your stuff. Anyone could come in and kidnap your kids. Everyone could come in and take your wife. Anyone could come in and kill your husband. <coughs> and they would do it at this time. It was not a safe place to be. So Nehemiah, pardon me, wanting to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, says, I'm going to do something. <coughs> Excuse me, my people are not safe. And I want to protect them. I want to make them safe. I bring safety to the king every single day. It is my passion. I'm going to turn around and bring safety to my people. To be a wall builder 
Someone has to be trustworthy. Oh, there he is, building the wall. I keep forgetting I have a picture. Isn't that a nice picture? This is one of the first photographs. To be a wall builder, one had to be trustworthy. One had to be trustworthy. Nehemiah, the king sends Nehemiah with resources and letters of recommendation that he could travel through all the countries around to get to Jerusalem, and he can requisition people and goods to rebuild this wall. He had to be trustworthy to do that. To be a wall builder, he had to be responsible. He had to accomplish what he was going to accomplish in a timely manner and within the budget because king doesn't want his stuff to be used, what am I trying to say? He doesn't want the United States government to be handling his money. (laughs) To be a wall builder, one had to be careful. The wall had to be built to specifications so that it would hold. He had to create alliances with people. He had to hold others to the task. He had to be careful not to rock the boat too bad. To be a wall builder, one had to put his life on the line every single day for someone else. There was a period of time when Nehemiah heard about these people who did not want the wall around Jerusalem to be rebuilt. So Nehemiah and half the crew worked on rebuilding the wall, and the other half of the crew stood with spears and shields, armor and bows and arrow to protect these people. Nehemiah was living a couple hundred miles away in Persia. He could have said, I am comfortable here. I don't want to put my life on the line again. But he said, no, I'm going to do this because this is who I am. I see need. I see some people that need to be protected. I'm going to do it, even if I get killed to do it. This was Nehemiah. He was a cupbearer. He was a wall builder. But who actually was he? Who was he? Those are his jobs. But who was he? What made him such a good cupbearer and such a good wall builder? What did it? First off, he knew his God. What gives someone the strength to pick up a glass that might be filled with poison and take that sip every single time? What gives someone the strength to do that? It could be that he was afraid of the king because what would happen if a cupbearer said, you know, king, I don't want to take this sip. You can do it. Cupbearer says, huh, you must have poisoned it. You're gone. So there's a fear. It says, okay, I'm going to take this sip because chances are it's not poisoned and I don't want the king to kill me. I don't think that's Nehemiah's, what what pushed him to do this, to say, I can take this sip every single time. Nehemiah was a man who knew his God. Nehemiah was a man who knew God's promises. He knew the faithfulness of God as it's been proclaimed from prophet to prophet to prophet, like prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Or the prophet Isaiah, who said in Isaiah 26, verse 19, Isaiah 26, 19, but your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Nehemiah knew that death was not the end for those who have placed their faith in God. Tomorrow, I have the privilege to do a funeral, and hopefully my voice will be better by then. Pray that it will be. But at that funeral, I get to declare that death is not the end for those who die in Christ. But we have a living hope that carries us through. 
Nehemiah had this living hope. He had confidence in his God, and that allowed him to pick up the cup every single day and take the sip, not knowing if that sip would be his last. This confidence carried him into wall building. When he heard the sad news about Jerusalem, he wept and he prayed. When he approached the king about his sorrow and said, hey, king, will you help? He first took a moment and he prayed. When he was in Jerusalem and he faced opposition, both verbal and physical, the first thing he did was not collect an armory around him. The first thing he did was pray. He was a man who prayed. He prayed over and over and over again. He prayed because he knew his God. He knew his God. He could take that sip because he knew his God. Not only did he know his God, but he knew his situation. As a cupbearer, he had to be aware of everything related to his situation. He had to know the staff. He had to know the, pos- <coughs> Excuse me. the possible enemies of the king. He had to know about drinks and poisons and which cough meant that you've just drank poison and which didn't. He had to know all those sorts of things. And he knew it because Nehemiah was careful. Nehemiah was a researcher. He liked to know the tasks that was in front of him and gain all the knowledge about the task before he made a plan and then he acted. When he traveled to Jerusalem, he got there in the afternoon, met with all the people who he was supposed to meet with, rub shoulders with those who he was supposed to rub shoulders, kiss the babies that he was supposed to kiss. And then once everyone fell asleep, he jumped on his horse and started riding around Jerusalem. No one else was with him except for a few people he could trust, and he assessed the damage. No one knew why he was there, but he did, and he found out the situation. Nehemiah 2, verses 13 to 16. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. Interesting names of gates. And by examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night and examined the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate, and the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing. Because as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who'd be doing the work. He knew his situation. He developed a plan, called others to the work. And once he knew his situation, he could take the glass and take the sip. Not only did Nehemiah know his God, not only did he know his situation, but he knew his role. Now, when I use the word know, um, not N-O, like I tell my kids, but K-N-O-W. When you use the word know, English, we have one word. That means a whole bunch of range. Biblically, there's lots of different separate words for the word that's know. And one of the most used is, which means intimate knowledge through experience. Biblically, to know is to have intimate knowledge through experience. This word is used of the consummation of marriage in bed, intimate knowledge through experience, It is used of God's relationship with us, intimate knowledge through experience, and it's supposed to be used of our relationship with God, intimate knowledge through experience. Nehemiah knew his role. He had intimate knowledge through experience of his role. He knew his task as cupbearer, and he performed that role impeccably. He knew his task as wall builder, and he performed that role to the very end. As he writes this book about his his story, it's 13 chapters. And 11 times, he talks about ways that he prayed. And the the last times are found in the end of the book, Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13, verse 14, he says, Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and services. I have taken my role. I have known it. I have done it. 
Nehemiah 13, verses 22. <clears throat> just turn to He says, Then he commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates that he's just built in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. He knew his role. He knew his role as cupbearer. He knew his role as wall builder, and he performed it. He said, this is my role. I'm going to do it. He raised his glass to his lips and took the sip. This is Nehemiah. Anyone asleep yet? No? Well, let's talk about you. If this is Nehemiah, who are you? Technically, this is Father's Day, but I can't just limit this to fathers. I'm going to expand it to men. Ladies, you're off the hook, except you can make a list and say, I'm going to pray for my husband about this because he sure needs it. The role of a father is specific to a family, but it's the same role that a man is supposed to have in whatever sphere he is in. The role of a man is to be trustworthy. People look up to us to have integrity, to walk and to live in truth. I pity the society whose men are not known as having integrity, who are not trustworthy. But unfortunately, our society, even those who profess themselves to be Christians, are leaning down this path where this is not description of a man. The role of a man is to be responsible, guarding the trust that has been put into our lives. One day we will stand before the judgment seat of God, <coughs> excuse me, and we will be answered to him. We will be held accountable to have we stood up and stewarded those who have been placed into our care, or have we not? We are responsible, we are to be responsible, and we will be held accountable by God. The role of a man is to be careful. We hold great power. We do, just as who we are, who God has made us to be, physically and emotionally, <coughs> in society. We need to realize the power that we wield, and we need to use it to uplift those around us, instead of so many people who tear people down because of the power we hold. We need to point people to God, not away from God. And finally, the role of a man is to put our lives on the line for someone else every single day. Technically, this could be, you know, stepping in front of someone and taking a bullet. But more often than not, that will never happen to us. Practically, it is to be a picture of Christ. Husband, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus died that we might live. And every day, men are supposed to show Christ by dying, not just physically, but dying to ourselves, that those in our care might live. We're to die to our desires. We're to die to our priorities. We're to die to our comfort. We're to die to all these things that our wives and our kids, everyone that are under our care, might live fully. We are to say, I'm going to decrease so they may increase. We are called to be a picture of God to a group of people who will not know God any other way but through us. And they've, they've done studies with kids and their viewpoint of the Father and their viewpoint of God. And it's interesting. Kids, however their father was to them, is how they view God. So if they have a father who is present and loving and active in their life, they will say, they will view God, say, oh, my God is present, loving, and active. But if they have God who is absent, non-loving, non-supportive, that's how they view their God. 
God has given us as men such an amazing opportunity to show God to people who will only see him through us. But too often, we say, I don't want to do it. I have better things on my plate. It is challenging to be a man. It is challenging to be a father in our society, to be trustworthy, responsible, careful, self-sacrificing. But in the face of that challenge, in the face of a culture that says, this isn't who you are, you're someone else, and you're to be someone else, because you can't do it. But in the face of a culture that says that, what will we do? Will we say, no, I want to be this. I want to be who God has called me to be. I don't know what the result will be. I don't know what the culture will do because I stand up and to be this man. I don't know what my family is going to, how they're going to respond if I stand up and be this man. I don't know what my friends are going to say when I stand up and be this man. But no matter what, I don't know what the result of my sip will be. But in the face of this culture, I'm going to take my task. I'm going to raise my glass. I'm going to take the sip because it's what I'm called to do. How do we do it, though? How do we say, God has called me to be this, and I'm going to do it no matter what? How do we do that? First, by knowing our God. By knowing our God. Men of Calvary Bible Church, do you know Jesus? And when I say no, I'm asking, do you intimately know him through experience? Or do you only know him through facts and histories? Facts and histories are great. I love a good textbook. But they do not bring salvation. I think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There is going to be a bunch of people, there's going to be a bunch of men who've come to church and sat on the pews because they had to, because their wife and their kids needed to be there, and so the men just dragged themselves along, except unless their wives allowed them to go fishing one Sunday. <coughs> but they've sat there on the pews, learning but it's never changed their heart. They didn't have an intimate experience with Jesus Christ. They never made the decision to say, I want to follow Jesus. Jesus said, not ever, people who, who say they know me, but they only know me if they've done the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? We find in John chapter three, 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. To love one another as he's commanded us. We are called to believe. It's not enough to know the facts about Jesus. We must come to him in humility and acknowledge that we need him. To say, I am a sinner and I realize I'm a sinner and my sin is separating me from my creator God. And there's nothing that I can do to change my situation. Even though I want to fix it, I can't. And so I come to the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, save me. I trust in your sacrifice on the cross to save me. And when we do that, when we believe, we get to know him. Men, have you done this? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? That's the foundation of it all. If we've placed our faith in Christ, once we do this, we need to walk with him. We're not called just to have fire insurance and have our 
ticket stamped and said, I'm good. But we're called to know him. We need to have a personal daily relationship with him. I find it convicting that Nehemiah, whenever anything happened, the first thing he did was pray. Was pray. We as men like to fix things. Yes? We do. We like to fix things. Our wife has a problem, and so we fix it because we know. We know. Ladies, what do you think? It's lies. It's pride. We might say, I can fix it, but I can't. I can't in and of myself. Instead of being known men as someone who can fix things or someone who can lead well, we are called to be known as someone who has the humility to say, I can't do it, but God can. We need called to be known as someone who constantly, continually says something's wrong, I'm going to turn to God. A question I really like to ask families, ask men, is to say, you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. You say that you know him. Does your family know that you know him? Do they see you as a man who constantly pursues Christ? Or do they see you as a man who worships the idol of work or the idol of fun? It's one thing to say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. It's another thing for others around to stand up and say, yes, he is. Can they tell by the time you spend with God whether you're a follower of him or not? Without looking to our families, we could just look at our calendar or a checkbook and say, okay, what is my priority? Am I following God or is it just words that I'm saying? Once we know God, we pursue that daily walk with him. We can say, I am a man and I'm going to step up because of what God has called me to do and because I know him and his faithfulness intimately through experience and we can raise our cup in the face of culture and take the drink. How can we raise our glass and take the sip? By knowing God. But also by knowing our situation. Knowing our situation. Nehemiah went in the middle of the night to survey that pitiful pile of rubble around and he found the people who were actively opposed to the work of building the wall. And he got to know the people who were within Jerusalem who were going to be building the wall. He discovered the materials and the process. He developed the plan. He said, I know my situation, and then I can work. Jesus said, in the context of counting the cost of being a disciple, in Luke 14, 28 to 30, he said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to fix it, everyone who says it will, sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. There's wisdom in knowing the situation we are in. Fathers, men, this is the hard thing. We are called to know the situation we are in. We are called to know our wife. We're called to know her emotions. You say, oh, please. You know how long that's going to be? That conversation is going to be horrible. First Peter says that we are called to live with our wives in an understanding way. That means we are to understand them. And you say, oh, but men can't know women. It's impossible for their mystery. It's because you're not spending enough time with her. Yes, she continually changes, but the Bible says we can know her. And we can live in a way that shows that we know her. 
if we spend the time. We were called to know her emotions. We were called to know the reason behind her emotions, and that's even longer conversation. Lord, have mercy. But we're called to know the sins that she struggles with. Oh, I know those. But not in a hateful way, but to gain the information. We're called to know our kids, called to know what they're going through, what their struggles and temptations are, where they are in their spiritual journey, and why they're there in their spiritual journey. We're called to know how our wives view us as husbands and how our kids view us as dads. We collect all this information, and then we look at ourselves, and we say, okay, am I spiritually where I need to be for what my family needs? Or is my spiritual decay affecting them? Where are they at? Where am I at? Basically, we ask the question, where are the walls falling down around my family and around my culture? What is the poison that is coming? <coughs> I'm not poisoned. What is the poison that is coming to their lips? And knowing that information, we then grab the glass in protection and we take the sip. Because that's what we're called to do. We know our God. We know our situation. And finally, we know our role. What is our role as men? Our role is the same as Nehemiah. We were called to put our lives on the line for those under our care. Nehemiah did it for the king. Nehemiah did it for Jerusalem. We as men are called to do it for those in our severe, to protect them spiritually, to help them build the walls around their lives spiritually, to grab the cup of poison from their lips and say, no, it is not going to come to you. I will protect you because this is who God has called me to be, a man. How do we do it? How do we do this role that we're called to do? Well, we've already assessed our situation. Now we jump in the task. Paul, after he talks about us dying for our wives, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So many pastors when they talk about men, they talk about the physical dying part or the emotional dying, dying to ourselves. But they don't go to the next step because not only are men supposed to lead their wives by saying, I'm going to die for, to my desires, but we are called to lead our wives spiritually just as Jesus did for us. He washed us with water through the word that we might be cleansed for him. In the same way, we as husbands are called to come to our wives and say, I want to lead you to Christ. We're called to listen to our wives and say, hey, I see what you're going through, and I cannot fix you. I can't do you. So we go to our wife, no matter what she's doing, and we come to her and say, I realize you're going through this, so can I lead you to Jesus, to the cross? what she needs. She doesn't need me. She needs him. But too often in our lives, we get so focused on the pain and the turmoil and the chaos, and we can't take our eyes off of that and, pull, and ourselves go back to Jesus. That's why our husbands, we need to come in and say, let me help you. That's why we as husbands every single day need to be praying with our wife after we have pursued Christ ourselves and we have the humility to acknowledge we need you, we take our wife's hand and say, come, come with me to God. And we pray with them daily. 
We read the Bible with them daily because they need our help to do that, our encouragement, not forcing it upon them, but tell you what, when a husband is willing to stand up and say, I want to lead you to Jesus, that wife wants to follow. They yearn for it. If we just do it and say, I'll pray with you, I'll read the Bible with you, I'll pick up a devotion and read it with you and we'll talk about it. But not only do we have to do it together, to model it for them, but we're called to encourage them personally to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. In our busy schedules in today's culture, it's very easy for us to say, I'm busy. I've got all this work I've got to do. I've got these projects around the house. I'm going to do my thing. Wife, you, you do your thing. You've got to work. You've got to take care of the kids. You've got to clean. You've got to cook. You've got to do all these sorts of things. And from morning to night, they've got no time. And we as men, as the leaders, are to say, wait a minute, my wife needs time with Jesus. She needs those rhythms of rest. And as a leader, I'm going to stand up and say that she's going to have them. And so every day I'm going to petition time off and say, wife, I got the tasks. I got the kids. This is your time today. Spend it with God. We have to make sure that she does it. We don't force her to do it, but we got to give her the time or she's not going to take it. We got to give her the time every week to have that rhythm of rest every week of several hours to say, this is your God time, wife. And when she come back, how, how'd it go? Did you spend time with him? Or did you take tasks off your list? Holding her accountable to spend time with God once a week. Give her that time. I got the kids. It'll be fine. They're going to be alive. The house might be gone, but they're going to be alive. <laughs> give her that time. And then every year, give her several days and say, I got it. You take several days and focus on God. We need to make sure she is taking those rhythms of rest, men. Because if we don't make sure she takes them, she never will. We are called to lead her to Jesus and give her opportunities to go to Jesus. Not only do we do that for our wife, but we're supposed to do it to our kids. In, in, it says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Just as we lead our wives spiritually, we are called to lead our kids spiritually. We say, but no, the church is doing that or my wife is doing that, or the school's doing that. It's our job. We're not to abdicate it, but to say, no, this is my task. I'm to see the walls broken down, and I am to rebuild them. I see the poison coming in, and I am to take it away. It is my task, my role. I am a cupbearer. I am a wall builder. I take the poison, and I say, I'm going to protect you. And I drink it. Men, do you know Jesus? Do you know your situation? Or are you too busy? Do you know your role? If you do, every day, take up that glass and take the sip. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being our God and allowing us to show pictures of who you are. 